0: Today, on episode number 806 of CXO Talk, we're discussing generative AI in the enterprise with Bruno Aziza. He is a partner with Capital
1: G. Capital G is Alphabet's independent growth fund. I've been in the data AI and analytics space for a very, very long time. Previously to Capital G, I was at uh, Google Cloud. The idea here is how do we help? this field of data, gen AI, and analytics innovate uh, up to its potential. And that's what I'm going to be focusing on in this next role.
0: When we talk about generative AI, what exactly do we mean when it comes to the enterprise?
1: If you are CEO or CIO, you've had experience yourself in the consumer context with uh, gen AI chatbots and so forth. And if you've looked at the recent research from Gartner, and you checked out their latest uh, hype cycle for emerging tech, you've seen that Gen AI is at the, the top of, of the hype. It's at the, it's at the peak of, uh, of inflated expectations. And the, the bottom line is AI has hit its, or Gen AI, I should say, has hit its uh, browser moment, right? It's in front of everyone. It's really captured the uh, collective imagination. There's a few things you got to consider though, when you're dealing with it in the enterprise. Uh, Because even though it's interesting from a consumer standpoint, and it's rewarding, it's uh, an interface that responds to you and is very helpful, you've got a few things in the enterprise you got to think about. The first one is, it's not magic, it's probabilistic, right? So you got to remember, the way it works is by completing um, information or sentences based on a model that's been trained. So there's a high level of probability, and sometimes it's not always correct. Uh, Second, you also have to think about how you orchestrate your teams around the Gen AI opportunity. It's not man versus machine or human versus machine. It's machines plus the humans. And so in a way, I think one of your guests recently called it the Iron Man suit, which is a very great analogy to think about how this is going to help your current employees to become more productive, to expand the scope of their skills and get to outcomes a lot faster. Now, the key trend here, it's actually research that came out today, Michael, so we're really uh, doing this live. What we're noticing is that how people are adopting Gen AI, they tend to mistrust technology in areas where it can actually contribute massive value, and they tend to trust it too much in areas where the technology is actually not competent. And so you really need a good framework if you're in the enterprise today to deploy this in a way that's ethical, in a way that is um uh, great for your business in the way that provides attribution to the source of the information because this technology generates new content and so you got to think about all the implications of that
0: you just mentioned this very important issue of trust in the data and also being able to discern where you should trust data and where you should not and can you drill into the relevance for generative AI? If you don't start with a foundation
1: of trust in this business, using gen AI is the equivalent of having found something that is really good at getting you the wrong answer very quickly. And so, you know, there's something new about this technology, but there's also something old about it, which the fundamentals of having trusted platforms that have data that people can rely on is tremendously important, right? Because that's what's feeding your model and that's what is providing information at scale to your employees in the way, if you don't do that well, Gen.AI will actually expose to more people the poor quality of your data. And so that's why it's really important to think about data quality as a fundamental block. We see customers who actually, before pointing Gen.AI to uh, consumers or customers, they pointed to their data management problems because it can actually effectively help with uh, labeling at scale, uh, identifying issues with the data where the data is empty or there's a data quality. So, Really starting with this concept of data quality is probably the first step uh, of adopting Gen.AI.
0: What about the traction? I know you talk with a lot of CIOs and CTOs. We're are you seeing use cases starting to develop the, and 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 just overall that issue of traction at this point today?
1: There's tremendous traction and tremendous interest. I think if you look at research, if you look at macro research, I think McKinsey said the opportunity is four point four trillion, which, by the way, if you look at the GDP of the u k, it's three point one trillion. So it's a gigantic opportunity. I think Morgan Stanley also came up with an opportunity size of seven trillion. So certainly, there is a lot of hope and a lot of awareness, a lot of attention. Where we see customers that are doing it in, in production, what is it that they're focusing on? They're looking at, at a few trends. The first one is this idea, and, and this is true for any technology, is shrinking time. How can I get to my outcome faster? How can I provide a more compelling customer experience? How can I help um, maybe junior folks on my team accelerate Uh, their learning. You know, a typical issue we had before we talked about AI or Gen AI is skill availability and acceleration of proficiency in a particular uh, team. And so here, if you're doing this right, you have the opportunity of taking a team maybe that's under-resourced or maybe a team that is more junior just starting to learn and now you're using technology that's accelerating their proficiency because it can summarize information, it can get them started in content and so forth. We've certainly found that Gen AI is this very powerful level of performance. Um, you know, there's actually, again, recent research from BCG showing that nearly each participant in this GenAI, about 90%, irrespective of their baseline proficiency, have produced higher quality results when they use GenAI versus people that are not using it, particularly when it comes to innovation. So it's really, really interesting. I know we'll get to talk about organizations like Wendy's and Telus and Cartier and Twilio. There are a lot of examples now. Of people that are doing this well. And they start with guiding principles, data quality, and picking the right use cases of where they can get the best outcome for their teams.
0: Please subscribe to our newsletter, subscribe to our YouTube channel, check out cxotalk.com. We have just extraordinary shows, extraordinary people coming up. Bruno, you alluded to the use cases. Are these use cases right now primarily focused on efficiency, meaning cost savings, or innovation? How are how are folks in the enterprise thinking about gener- generative AI in relation to these?
1: Certainly, there's a lot of literature out there talking about Gen AI saving uh, money for a CIO and so forth. But the, the organizations that we've seen succeed with it, they really focus on uh, innovation. And they actually, if I were to break down the types of use cases. The priority goes a little bit something like this. The first one is this idea of increasing efficiency and productivity. You could see it in the case of marketing or software engineering, where you are trying to automate tasks that previously were done uh, that you know were where repetitive and they were not uh, you know enabling people to focus on creative tasks. And so this idea of efficiency is is an important one. The second one is around improved customer experience. I mean, you certainly see chatbots and the ability to start conversations from a, a much better uh, place and, and providing a more compelling customer experience in general, right? So we'll talk about a few uh, companies, but in general, that's the theme is productivity for employees, leveling up their proficiency, if you will, and then customer facing. I think the third scenario is really about increased innovation, right? So. This idea of generating new ideas. what's what's interesting here, I know we talk a lot about how the models you know and, and and how they are supposed to automate a lot of work, but there is this amazing dimension of companionship. You know, as if you're an author, I know you're a content creator yourself, when you get started, it's very lonely. You have got an empty page, and it's true, by the way, for a lot of software engineers. Well, having this help allows you to kind of test ideas, get feedback, so, you can get started a lot faster. So, what we found as well is that it is a tremendous help for people that need to get started faster in the case of marketing, sales, engineering, uh, great ways to kickstart, if you will, innovation.
0: There was just an article that came out that said companionship is one of the major growing use cases. You just alluded to that. I personally find it hard to imagine. That that's the case, but it seems to be according to the research.
1: I think it's very true. I mean, you you should the way I would think about it is if you're using any uh, of these tools today, Bart or any of the other uh, Gen AI chatbots, think about it as dealing with it with another person. Thank it, give it feedback. Uh, it's it's a really interesting uh, relationship you can build. Now, of course, you got to remember, right? It's not a human behind this, so you got to remember there's a, a fair amount of of uh, probability going into it. But if you break it down now into um, the various use cases, what research shows you is that in existing use cases, when you're trying to expedite manual work, repetitive work, I think there's research showing that effectively interacting with Gen AI can cut time by half. In new ones, just like we talked about in gem-starting your first draft, you can uh, really accelerate. In the case of code refactoring, for instance, research found that nearly two-thirds of the time can be cut. And then there is this aspect of beyond, meaning if I throw a hard problem at a developer or a person creating content, they're 25%, 30% more likely to actually perform the tasks to its completion in comparison to the folks that did not have uh, Gen AI, uh, tooling available to them. So I think a lot of it is we're learning how to interface with them. And uh, you, know, you should just uh, give it feedback and see how it works for you. It certainly works well for me.
0: I've actually discovered the same thing and I and I also read an article about exactly this the other day that if you provide prompts to the gen AI that are more interactive, more friendly in tone because it is probabilistic and it's based on training data that comes ultimately from humans that the responses are better and more accurate and more complete.
1: If you see the examples of organizations that are doing this well today, a big part of it is a change management issue as well, where it's it's really training people how to interact with these, these new tools, just like we saw it with the advent of the internet and the browser. You know, so this is not uncommon, but it also takes a little bit of a change management work, a little bit of a mindset shift. And also, I'd say your CIO or CXO listening to us today is really the focus on the high impact use cases, right? Because there is also a risk here that is stuck between like what I call FOMO and FOMO. You know, FOMO is the fear of missing out. You want to try everything, but you also have the FOMO, the fear of messing up, if you will, where you don't want to point uh, this technology to problems that don't exist. And so you need to have some kind of framework uh, so you can think about, okay, where is this technology going to be most helpful to me based on the value to the business and also to the capabilities of my team, how successful. You've been so far in bringing this technology into their daily workflow,
0: and we have a really interesting comment on LinkedIn from Alexander Vasiliev, who is a CIO and CTO, and he says in his organization they use it for quality control and to check voice records.
1: People tend to point Gen AI directly to customer-facing examples, but in fact, if you look at where it can also be helpful, it is in this case of um data management right and so data labeling classification uh data cleansing automation data quality automation mdm automation there's also this whole idea of data augmentation right there's some professions some domains like for instance think about healthcare where it's not easy and it's also expensive and sometimes impossible to test on real world data so you can use genai to generate synthetic data so you can still work and make progress towards your goal without um, you know, having to work with data that's just simply not available to you. So there's a lot, I think, about Gen.ai that is about helping you gain better quality uh, on your data, which, like I said, you know, is a foundational um, block, I think, of any data strategy. If people don't trust your data, if you don't trust your data, it really doesn't matter the application that sits on top of it.
0: We have a question from Twitter, and this is from Arsalan Khan, who is a regular listener and he always asks great questions and he says this AI is a combination of data and algorithms we often talk about managing the data used by AI but what about managing the underlying algorithms to ensure they don't have biases and are charging with and are uh, causing change and are and are changing evolving with societal changes
1: there's a lot of dimensions to quality, right? I think if you if you Google quality, there's a paper that probably dates uh, 25 years that breaks down the 16 various dimensions of quality. And I think what Arsene is uh, alluding to, one is you got to start with that framework. You also have to make sure that the framework evolves over time as new data comes in and as new situations are, are coming into uh, your environment. There is this uh, principle. I didn't invent this one. This is from... Uh, a company actually called IQ and the, the CEO who's been in the field for a long time, calls it the RAFT principle. RAFT is an acronym, and it stands for reliability, accountability, fairness, and transparency. And so I think, you know, as you think about your models and the data that is feeding these models, you should run them through these dimensions. Like I said, there's many more. There's is is, is uh, referring to a few of them. I'd say these four here. I don't think you can compromise on on them, right? Reliability, accountability, fairness, transparency—key uh, key, key um, dimensions. And frankly, in this world of gen AI, this is going to sound counterintuitive. Data quality is actually the moat, right? Your moat as an enterprise is not just the model and in you know the algorithm, but it is actually the quality, the provenance, the trustability of, of your data. So This is an important question, I think, important consideration. It's very, very relevant in the enterprise.
0: That's really interesting. Why do you say data quality is the, the moat, the competitive moat?
1: If you're looking to differentiate yourself as, a, as an enterprise today, the work that you've done over many, many years, some organizations are listening to us, You know, decades of data is the basis of your recipe. Just like if you think about making a great dish, you know, you can, of course, the plate matters, the fork and the knife matter. But real really, if the meat inside the dish is really terrible, <laughs> uh, it ruins the entire dish. And so, you know, this is where I think organizations have the opportunity to truly differentiate. Inversely, if you have not done a great job with your data, and you have not curated it well, and you haven't Establish provenance, right? Remember, one of the big issues in this field is as you're using AI to create new content, you've got to understand provenance because you got to understand attribution. Where does this data come from in the first place? And so if you haven't kind of done this hard work, then it's really going to be difficult for you to differentiate. So this is where organizations that are data first, that are AI first, have a competitive advantage. Because they've already thought about what it takes to activate this data at scale, with the highest degree of quality and trustability, and and reliability, and and ethics around that data, which is what Arsalan was referring to here.
0: Your enterprise AI strategy, including generative AI, but but in in its entirety, needs to be founded right at the outset on a very solid data strategy.
1: Absolutely, this is where I was saying there's something old and something new here. The new is amazing applications that really don't require much training for people to adopt them. The old doesn't go away. All the discipline you needed to have around data quality, trustability, traceability. Like I said, there's a 16 to 20 dimensions on there. Don't divorce yourself from that. In fact, a lot of the organizations that we talk to, when we ask them, how do you prioritize your budget for a Gen AI? You know, the assumption could be, well, they're going to take the data budget and the AI budget and then divert it to Gen AI, that's absolutely not what's going on here. You know, they're adding a new budget for Gen AI because they realize that the fundamentals don't change. And in fact, they're becoming more important because if you now activate an application that everybody can use towards data that's not great, everybody's going to see it. So it exposes even more
0: and we have another question again from alexander vasilev, vasilev and he says he comes back and he says have you seen the use of chat gpt and other generative ai in the real estate market and he says that in the uae it's an exciting question with market growth every year so use of generative ai in real estate
1: just like other businesses where we've seen examples is in customer interfacing. So um, where someone is trying to create a a full experience for themselves, very much like you'd say, um, in the travel industry, for instance, you know, today, in order to really satisfy the answer of of a consumer, there's a lot of steps that are required, right? So I want to take a trip over here, and the trip needs to have a hotel, a car, flight, and so forth. Real estate is a very similar example where I'm looking for a house, one needs to have two beds, two baths, this location, close to this school district, and so forth. And so there's certainly organizations that are using Gen AI in order to interface with the consumer, one, making sure that they're completing the information that's needed before they kind of package the solution to them. It's a great example of where you can create truly compelling integrations in industries that are traditionally not vertically oriented or integrated, I should say, where for you to complete the job, if you will, of the consumer, there might be five different steps, maybe 15 questions leading there. Gen AI could truly help you with that because it can get the answers out of the person, if you will, and you know integrate that in a, in a solution and propose back. And so it's a key dimension, I think, of what works for use cases in Gen AI is that they need to be context aware. They need to follow the conversation so they understand that They're completing the job you're hiring them for. They're not just answering this one question like you would see, you know, maybe in a typical search interface.
0: How can we best identify the ideal use cases or the optimal or the use cases in the enterprise that will yield the most fruitful results the most uh, quickly? Today, as there is a lot of press around this, very
1: tempting to just look at the list of use cases and think you've got to. Try all of them. In fact, there's I think research recently, McKinsey released this research showing 63 various use cases. But in fact, if you double click, 75% of the value in the enterprise or Gen AI use cases comes from four areas: customer operations, marketing and sales, software engineering, and research and, and development. And so I would first start with that. I, I I'm not suggesting to ignore the Hundreds of use cases you could have, but that could become really distracting, especially if you don't remember the research telling you, you know, 75% in these, these four areas. And so that's where I'd focus first is identifying these areas and then keying it off of the organizations that have done this well. So if you take an example of Wendy's, for instance, a great example of customer facing uh, use cases, 75 to 80% of Wendy's customer orders come through the drive through and customers can customize their menus there's billions of possibilities and so here they're using genie ai for two things one is making sure that they're interfacing with the consumers in the in the time constraint with a situation with billions of solutions but also making effective code for their employees to get the order right and so i would look at these dimensions where you have the type of technology that enables you to provide a compelling customer experience while taking care of your employees because happier employees are gonna just be better for your uh, customers. I'll give you another example of an organization in the medical field, right? The, uh, the Mayo Family Foundation. And they're looking to minimize their employee burnout. So what happens is an average patient, when you see a patient on average is seven to 8,000 data points. And an average physician will see anywhere between 10 to 15 patients per day. So that means 120,000 data points that this individual has to go through in order to provide a diagnosis or being able to serve the patient. So here they're using AI to summarize the records. And so it helps the doctor really focus on their job in a better manner because they're facilitated with that technology. So that's how I would look at it. I would say step one, sure, read about all the use cases, but remember there's four. Customer operations, marketing, sales, software engineering, R&D, and then look at the ones where you're hitting values on both sides of the equation, compelling customer experience and improve employee uh, experience as well, because these two things are highly correlated.
0: What are the risks of choosing the wrong use cases?
1: You're going to end up with a lot less value uh, that you think you're going to get. And so that's you know, problematic for, we know chief data and analytics officers today while there's many more than there were 10 years ago, they also have a very short tenure, I think two and a half years to three years. And I think often is because the first use cases they focus on tend to be the ones that don't generate value uh, for the business in general, or maybe they might be perceived as these toy use cases on the edge that really are not advancing the organization. So I think that's risk one as a personal leader yourself You know, a lot of it is how your career is going to evolve through the right bed. And so we see a lot of organizations like Wayfair, for instance, has assembled this internal generative AI council so they can evaluate the potential use of the technology based on value uh, to the business, but also current capabilities inside the organization. These two things, again, are highly correlated. And so that's risk number one. Risk number two, of course, is, well, you might be using the wrong data. Uh, you might not be attributing uh, the the data, and so now you're running into the typical issues of governance and quality and data security. So, having guiding principles, a council uh, is going to allow you to minimize these risks for sure.
0: We have another question from Twitter, and again, this is from Arsalan Khan, who comes back and he says, enterprise architecture can help organizations become better decision makers through data used to drive strategic alignment. AI accelerates this. There is a symbiotic relationship also between enterprise architecture and AI. And so, can you comment on this relationship between enterprise architecture and AI?
1: Uh, highly related. So, the industry chatter today is that these two things are actually separate. And I'd, ar- I'd argue with that point that they are actually extremely connected. Uh, if you have an environment that is uh, not tightly integrated, Uh, that is difficult for your data scientists, your data analysts to work with, it's going to be really, really challenging for you to build Gen AI applications. In fact, we've identified that it goes beyond just the technology. It also goes to how your team is structured. You know, what we're seeing now is data teams and AI teams, by the way, are converging, right? So that's another key point here. I think that probably our is asking about is, should I have my Gen AI team here and my data team over here? What we've seen is actually teams that are converging because these two topics are highly uh, correlated. We also see this culture of moving to building data products. If you think about what GenAI is or a GenAI application is, it's ultimately a very intelligent data product. And so we see customers hiring a data product manager, a UX leader, a program manager, uh, to pair with the data scientists, the data engineering team, and their chief data officers to really build an integrated system that starts with the ownership of the data all the way to the activation and the value that this data is going to provide. And so I'd say, you know, they are highly correlated. Don't make the mistake of ignoring one to the benefit of the other because you will probably regret it if you do.
0: Given all of these use cases, what kind of metrics or Key performance indicators (KPIs) can companies use to evaluate these these AI projects?
1: I think, in general, the themes that we see are around make money, saving money, innovating. Right? I mean, those are kind of the the places where it gravitates. I mean, I look at examples of organizations that are doing this well today. Walmart, for instance. So, Walmart has 50 million Walmart customers. They're interfacing in some way and shape with their conversational experience, right? So, they have over a million associates that are also experiencing that. Uh, What they've looked at is how can we help our associates, our store associates, uh, be a better service to our uh, customers. So they have built this application called Ask Sam, which is an AI tool, and they have over 2 million associates using the application today. So here a metric would be, are we helping our customers navigate through the experience Faster, And some of it is not going to be through their direct interface with the tooling. It's going to be with the ability of our employees to be more uh, productive at providing an amazing experience. You see areas in the legal field, for instance, Accenture in in Europe has this project called ALICE. So so ALICE is an acronym, stands for Accenture Legal Intelligent Contracts. They have over a million contracts that their legal team has to go through in order, order to identify the Accenture's rights and obligations on these contracts. And so Alice is this NLP tool that enables them to interface with the contracts in English to find the relevant metadata. And so again, I think here it's 28,000 professionals, 2,800, I'm sorry, 2,800 professionals globally that are using that tool. Again, this idea of, yes, productivity for my employees and also to the goal of providing better service either for the organization or directly for the consumers.
0: So Would it therefore be correct to say that evaluating these generative AI projects actually is not much different than looking at any other business project? You're looking at the business results, whether it's innovation, cost savings, whatever it might be. The catch here is we don't yet have a great model for
1: how much it's going to cost you to deploy some of this technology. I think that's probably a a key conversation to have is if you're CXO and CXO today, how do you think about the cost structure? What is your approach to Gen AI to maximize the results against, against the cost? Because today, like I was saying earlier, customers are not replacing their AI and data budget you know, to the benefit of Gen AI. They are adding to it. And so there is a huge conversation here. And of course, now, becoming more and more affordable to uh, run Gen AI. But you also have to think about the value and cost equation inside your organization.
0: As companies are making investments in AI in general and and generative AI specifically, generative AI produces open-ended results, right? If you you add up two plus two, it's always and always always going to equal four. But if you put a prompt into generative AI, you don't really know what you're going to get. In addition, the technology is changing and, eva- and evolving so quickly. The data needs are evolving. And so, how can organizations invest effectively given all of these changing circumstances and uncertainties?
1: You've got great examples in companies like Wayfair and Walmart who have published their, their principles uh, and they've really thought about start with the principles first. How do we think about treating data? What are the types of experiences we want to create with that? Then, second, does the architecture accommodate these goals? And here, I mean, architecture in a wide, uh, broad definition, the technical architecture, but also the organizational blueprint that enables you to do that. The The last component is, how do you cost that out? Now, luckily, there's research on that. Now, the research is not always perfect because in this, in this field in particular, it's just moving so fast that some of the costs I'm going to share with you here you know, might change in, in two months. But there's essentially three ways that you can interface or a combination of these three ways you can interface with this technology. Uh, and it's McKinsey's uh, research on the taker and the shaper and the maker. And so the taker is a, a use case where you are using publicly available models. Maybe it's a chat interface, an API. There's not a lot of customization. Um, here, the cost, their valuation, the cost is it's a one-time cost of half a million dollars to two million, and then a recurring cost of half a million dollars. So that's the very first one. The second one is the shaper, which is about integration of models. And so an example here is supporting sales deals by connecting generative uh, tool to a CRM, for instance. And so here, this act of uh, fine-tuning uh, the cost starts about two million to ten million as a as a one-time model, and then ongoing anywhere between half a million to a million recurring uh, annually. The third one, which is the most expensive one, is about the maker, right? So that's the organization, or uh, you know, that, that's building a foundation model and wants to address very discrete costs here uh, to get started anywhere between five to twenty mil- to to uh, two hundred million. And then, as a recurring cost, half a million to one million. And so you can see there's a very, very wide range here between customizing technology that exists to fine tuning it to starting from scratch. Now, the good news here is you have examples of organizations in the public domain. HBR, uh, I think, just published a story of Morningstar that prompt tuned an existing LLM. And in their case, so Morningstar. Uh, this is a you know stock uh, company looks at a lot of information. They have this uh, research agent called Mo uh, that's built on top of GenAI. Uh, they look 10,000 pieces of Morningstar research, and they were able to get Mo, the agent, to answer 25,000 questions at an average of zero 0.002 cents per question. So total cost of three thousand dollars. So wide range here in the costs. Uh, and most likely as an enterprise, you're probably going to take one of those three paths, if you will, probably two for sure, because creating a foundation model is not a trivial endeavor. It's not for any organization, but that's a key consideration is, is the value and cost relationship. The good news is things are getting better and getting cheaper, uh, but also as, as, uh, as that's happening, the ambition and the types of questions we want to ask are also
0: getting more sophisticated again, Alexander Vasilyev wants to know, when you gave the example about Accenture, did you mean that they u- are using a vector database to collect all contracts?
1: No. And there's a video that's uh, uh, available uh, from their leader. Uh, this is really about using uh, AI foundations to go through these documents and identify and, and summarize and organize the metadata of these contracts
0: we have a question a really interesting one from Elizabeth Shaw on Twitter who says can generative ai be corrupted if so how how does it get corrupted and how can you tell what does corrupt data when it comes to generative ai actually look like it's a really interesting question
1: and it's a wide question as well because what is what is corruption is it the quality is it the fidelity uh, is it the legal use of of the information so there's multiple Um, uh, uh, dimensions of of corruption, I I would say, you know, I have this acronym, I'm going to take a little bit more time to answer this question, if you don't mind, because I have this acronym that I think is key when you think about Gen AI uh, and uh, and call it MTCAR, M-T-C-A-R. When you think about Gen AI applications, the first bit is that you're looking for experiences that are multimodal in input and output, image, text, code, math, in and out. You want that type of interface. T is what, uh, you know, this question is about trustable. And there are many dimensions of trustability. Privacy, you know, which is, which data is used as a source? Is this data protected? Is it shared with others? Reliability, fidelity of the data, robustness of the data, because the, this affects the quality of their insights. Fairness, transparency, accountability. So T is very important. And then in the CAR, you know, C is about contextual, being able to have a conversation like, just like humans do. A is about applied to a workflow. So that's also an area where, to the question, uh, if it's not tightly integrated on the existing workflow, it could get corrupted. So it might not be just the data provenance, but it might be the way it's integrated inside the workflow. And R is about recency, right? A lot of what's happening around data quality and and the, the trustability of the data is having data that's relevant to the question being asked. You know, A lot of the issues with some of these models today is because it takes so much time to train them, Asking something that happened yesterday. Well, when was that yesterday? Is it yesterday for you? Is it yesterday for when the model was trained? And so that's another type of, I guess, corruption you could call because it's incomplete data. It doesn't have data from the last uh, twenty-four hours. So those are all the dimensions to think about.
0: Arsalan Khan comes back and he reminds us that we have not talked about at all about a very important topic, which is culture. And his question then is. AI requires a huge culture change. IT alone can't change the culture. Who should lead AI? Is it the CIO, the CFO, the CTO, the CEO? So culture and leadership with respect to AI.
1: Culture is typically the number one um, barrier that most organizations have to uh, break through in order to succeed with data, AI, and analytics. Uh, The person that ideally uh, will lead, that is the CEO of the organization. You know, often we say, hey, this is why I hired the chief data officer or the CIO. But the reality is that they need more than just sponsorship. Uh, They actually need a mandate of an organizational leader, the CEO of the organization that says, this is the principles. And culture is not something you print on the wall, right? Culture is what you do, which then leads into how is your organization optimized? That's why earlier I was talking about these roles, the data product manager and so forth. Because the CEO has to have the mandate and they have to enable their team to hire the right types of individuals and right types of leaders in order to apply this culture. And so, uh, absolutely a great question. uh, But it's not, again, something you solve with posters on the wall. It's about the leadership and how your organization is structured.
0: So, Bruno, let me come back and play devil's advocate for a moment on that point. So, the CEO says, Great. Thank you so much for your input. But you know what? This AI stuff is no different than, you know, we've had new networking technologies and new programming languages, and you people are always coming to us with this song and dance, and I don't see a difference. Ideally, you want a CEO that comes in and says, this is the way
1: we're going to do things. Now, what we've seen organizations succeed in an environment like this as one thing that leaders really hate is losing. (laughs) And so if you're able to quantify the costs of the missed opportunity, it's an effective way to turn around that relationship with the CEO. Now, if it doesn't work, I would say you probably want to do something more drastic for uh, your personal choice, because ultimately you need that leader to support you, particularly as your experiment, you might not be right all the time, so you will make mistakes in the process. But I had this customer that quantified the value of each mistake. And then it was $50,000 or some number like that. And every day she was reporting to their CEO. Well, today we lost another $250,000 because we made these mistakes. And here's the proof that it was the wrong decision. So if you can't convince with logic and positive, then convince with emotions and negative is where... I would uh, take this. Uh, That's certainly what's worked for some of the organizations to work with.
0: What advice do you have regarding adoption of generative AI in the enterprise, given all the issues that we've been talking about today?
1: A few things. I think the first bit that I'd remember is there's something old and something new here. It's amazing that you're going to get the excitement and the attention. I mean, there's no better time to work in data AI and analytics than right now because I know when I started. It was a back-office problem, and so now it's front and center, right? So that's the good news is everybody's going to pay attention. The other piece of good news is the interface to data has changed. It used to be code. And now it's language. So that means it could be available to many, many uh, other uh, con- constituents inside your organization, which in the past, you know, we had this idea of like, well, get it to the data scientist first, get it to the data engineer first, get it to the business user last in a way here. now that framework is really speeding you into putting it in front of business users. So that's the good news. The bad news about it, or the the thing that could really be a gotcha is to misunderstand that the most really here is data, data quality, trustability, provenance, reliability, governance, ethics around the data. That's really where your center of design for your Gen AI product resides. And so you want a strong, a set of capabilities around that. You want people that know how to orchestrate that um, because if that piece doesn't work, the opposite will happen to assuming value from Gen.AI. You'll actually expose to many more people inside your organization, maybe your partners, your customers, that the data you started with is in fact bad. And so good news, lots of great attention. Uh, Not such new news is you need to continue working on data quality because that is
0: ultimately your mode. And We have one more question that's come in from Twitter, again from Elizabeth Shaw, who also points out an entire area we have not spoken about, but I'll ask you just very briefly, which is this. What about the future of work and the workforce as generative AI use expands in the enterprise?
1: There's research, I think, again, it was McKinsey, um, that originally identified that 50% of our tasks would be Im- Im- impacted. In fact, they found now that it's about 60 to 70%. So I think the question is right on here where it's going to require a lot of different, uh, uh, interfacing, uh, with the machines. But again, the, the key word here is humans and the machine. This is not a scenario where it's the machine only it's humans with the machine are going to be more productive and create more compelling experiences than humans without uh, the machines. And I think that's very true uh, for a very, very long time. So that's how we'd approach it. It certainly changes the way we should think about the educational system as well, right? If you think about 20 years from now, how do you train certain professions? And so I think that's a key consideration as well. If you're doing enablement at your organization and onboarding new employees, you got to start with Gen AI as being a component, which maybe a year ago, that wasn't the case at all. But the, the good news here is that, again it's a it's a it's a very powerful level of performance so you can you know onboard people that maybe are new to the craft or maybe have fewer resources and with this new technology if used correctly with the right data uh, platform uh, and the right set of of uh, guiding principles you truly accelerate uh, the productivity of of your employees
0: so using generative AI as a lever inside your organization to accomplish things that you couldn't do as easily or even to do new things. That's correct. And with that, we are out of time. A huge thank you to Bruno Aziza. He's a partner with Capital G. Bruno, thank you so much for coming back and be hearing, being here again with us.
1: Well, thank you so much for having
0: me, Michael. And a huge thank you to everybody who is listening. You guys are an amazing audience. You know, CXO Talk is for you, and I love your questions. Before you go, please subscribe to our newsletter, subscribe to our YouTube channel, check out cxotalk.com. We have just extraordinary shows, extraordinary people coming up, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you so much, everybody. Take care.